as you sit, just realize for a minute, you're sitting in the presence of a holy God. We as a community of believers. You know, we've talked about, Tim's preached about obedience, how Christ was obedient to the cross. But there was a forerunner, Abraham. Abraham was asked to give his son in. In Abraham's mind, it was going to happen. But you know what he said to his servants when he and the lad went farther? The lad and I are going to worship. Not he, you know, Abraham considered sacrifice as worship. We think sacrifice is punishment. But it's worship. Next Sunday, we celebrate a day that Jesus did everything that was ever needed. Everything. You know, the book of Revelation says that if you read it, you're blessed. And if you hear it, you're blessed. Well, I've been reading in Revelation, not because of end times. It's just helping me where I am at the time. But when they was trying to find somebody who could open the book, no one was found worthy. But because of what Jesus did next Sunday that we celebrate, he was found worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We will reign with Christ one day as Jesus celebrated. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as I come to you this morning, a lot has been said as I've talked, and I lift that as a prayer. Father, we know that Jesus gave his, his, his life. We know that Holy Spirit comforts. But Father, this morning, as we sit in your presence, as these folks sit in your presence and I stand before you, help us to realize the love, the infinite love of God. Father, we see too often you as just God out there. But because of your Holy Spirit that you sent and dwells in us, Father, we need to see you as Father, as Protector, as the one who has everything under control, more than any earthly father could. So, Father, my heart grieves because of so many who don't see your love. Your love. Father, I pray that during this next week, that as these have their quiet time and read before you, that sometimes just close the Bible and sit in your presence to realize your love. My heart this morning is for, is for your people to realize your love. Remember hearing a lady say that she's been in church all of her life, but she had to go to the International House of Prayer to find out that God loves her. Father, we can find that out if we just sit before you and allow your Holy Spirit to reveal who you are, what you've done, and what you want to do in us.
I don't know what else to say except, Lord, open our eyes to your love. That there is no love besides yours. All other love has a selfish motive. Has something to, to, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Only your love is pure. So fill us, fill our hearts, Father, with your love. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. I have a few announcements for you before we open the scriptures together. Um, AJ is going to be uh, joining us and uh, opening the scriptures before us, and uh, so I'll be praying over him here in a minute. But it's a big week, so we need to let you know what's going on this week. First of all, in the life of the church, in the leadership of the church, this week is the ending of our deacon nomination process. And so there are envelopes with um, ballots in the lobby, uh, one envelope per member family with the number of ballots inside uh, corresponding to the number of adult members in the family. Uh, We need those back by tomorrow at noon. And so there are offering boxes in this room and in the gymnasium where you can turn those in. It's the same where you would turn in tithes and offerings, the same boxes for both purposes. Uh, But please do that, and please don't do that too quickly. Please prayerfully consider uh, which men in the church you believe God is lifting up to lead in the deacon ministry over the next season of time. Uh, These men will commit to a two-year term. Uh, We are looking to add six to eight men to our current team. And so please prayerfully consider. On the back of the page, you'll see the list of biblical qualifications for deacon leadership on the back of that page. So please make note of that. And don't do that too quickly, but do it uh, thoughtfully and prayerfully. Now, then this weekend, this is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, which makes this a a big week in the life of the church. And I said it last week, and I'm going to say it again. We have a big weekend in that we have three services over the course of one weekend, and they're in three different locations. And that's confusing, but we can do this if we do it together, okay? So Friday night at 6 o'clock in this room, Good Friday service. And that is going to be, uh, we'll have some overflow in the gymnasium, just like we have going on right now for that. So we want you here Friday night at 6 o'clock as we celebrate the cross and we remember the sacrifice of the cross. That's Friday night, 6 o'clock right here. And then on Easter Sunday, our, our main service is going to be 1030 Easter Sunday. We will not have 915 on Easter Sunday. We will not have 1030 or we will not have anything in this room or in this building or on this property on Easter Sunday. Don't come to 2044 Doug Gap Road on Easter. Um, Come on Friday night, 6 o'clock here, but then on Easter Sunday, Walnut Hill Farm, which is about 20 minutes from here, it's uh, it's over on the north side of town, Uh, 10.30, we'll have one worship service, we'll have capacity to get everybody together, there will be no overflow room, there will be no two services, everybody will be together, and and we'll have more room than necessary for everybody, which means it's a great time to invite somebody. And I I shared, I think, a couple weeks ago, um, the research shows that um, people were slow to come back to regular worship after after COVID, and then that, that return just sort of stopped at a certain point. And now, if you look around the country in American churches, somewhere between 70 and 80% of people have actually returned. And there's been a a huge drop-off. So this is an opportunity 
we need to re-engage people that have disengaged from the local church. Not, not, not just our church. Our return rate has been great. We, we, our services are attended very well right now, and I appreciate that. But we need to connect with people that may have a sense of cultural Christianity without a real understanding of the gospel or heartfelt connection to Christ's body in a local church. We need to engage with them. We need to engage with the lost in our community. And Easter Sunday, in the southern culture in which we live, is an opportunity for evangelism to get somebody to, to just come to an Easter service. You have questions about the cross. You have questions about the resurrection. You have questions about what life in the local church is about. Please invite people. Um, we'd love to have extra guests on Easter Sunday as we present the gospel with clarity. Also on that morning, I didn't go in sequential order, but on that morning at 7.15 Easter Sunday, we'll have a joint sunrise service with two other churches in our neighborhood. So Grace Presbyterian Church right around the corner and Doug Gap Baptist Church right across the street. Those three churches, we are all going to be gathering together at 7.15 at Grace Presbyterian Church um, for a joint sunrise worship service. That will be uh, right at an hour service. There's, no, there's not going to be any issue with attending that service and then getting out to Walnut Hill in plenty of time for the 1030 service out there. So we'd love for any of you to be a part of all three of those. 6 o'clock Friday night, 7.15 Sunday morning, and 10.30 Sunday morning. As I said, three different locations, um, but it'll be a rich, rich Easter weekend where we'll get to have one service celebrating um, the resurrection all together. And also, um, earlier that morning, we'll have an opportunity to worship with two other local churches. So I'm going to invite AJ to come up here, and uh, I'm going to pray for him before uh, he opens the word to us. And I'll, I'll just say briefly that uh, this has been spring break week, but our youth and kids ministry is back to normal tonight. They're meeting at normal times um, here tonight. But um, AJ is, if you do not know him, he's um, been our youth pastor since July, and this is his first opportunity um, to be here with us on a Sunday morning to uh, deliver the word. He's led worship for us on Sundays before. He obviously has a lot of uh, teaching experience with the youth, but AJ is a servant of the word, and um, AJ is here because he loves the word, and he wants to present it to God's people, and uh, that's, why, that's why the connection uh, came for him to come and join us on staff at Fellowship, and that's why uh, he's presenting the word to us this morning. So I'm going to pray for him. Father, thank you for AJ and Carson and Amelia, and Father, for the way that you have brought them into our church and into our family, into our community um, here at Fellowship in Dalton. And Father, now speak through him. Open our hearts and minds that we would be listening to you as you speak through AJ and you um, present your words to us that we might leave um, changed, impacted, and ready to respond to your word and your gospel. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Y'all good? Good. Um, I'm excited to be able to be here with you guys to open up the Word and uh, just to get to spend some time with y'all this morning. Um, I've absolutely enjoyed my time here since July. I've enjoyed getting to be with our youth. I've enjoyed to get to be with all the rest of y'all, and it's just been absolutely great. And so um, I'm happy that my first time getting to speak is actually in a scene that I'm very comfortable with. So being inside our youth room, this is where we spend most of our time on Sunday nights, and so it's been, it's cool to be able to get to do this in this room. And I hope that y'all have enjoyed your time here. Um, 
during this season where we get to hang out in the youth room and worship here on Sunday mornings. I think it has been absolutely awesome. It has been so good just for us to do something different, to be able to get in some different seats, to be able to sit with different people, to be able to talk to different people that you usually wouldn't get to. Um, and so it has been great, and the Lord has blessed us during this time. We've had uh, families that have joined our children's ministry. We've had kids that have joined our youth ministry, and we've just seen the church grow during this time. And so I'm just so thankful that, that we have a place where we can get together and worship and to be together um, and just to see all the great things that the Lord is doing. Um, and if y'all will, open up to Luke 23. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25. And as you get there, I want to kind of share with y'all a little bit about me because most of the youth, I know you guys, but the rest of y'all, um, I've been able to really sit down and talk to, um, except for a few of you. And so just wanted to share uh, one of my favorite verses with y'all, and it's Romans 8:28. And it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, and that's a verse that has meant a lot to me throughout the years um, that I've been alive, which has been 27, which is not very long. Um, but the Lord has brought me through a lot in 27 years, and he has taught me a lot through that verse. Um, and so a lot of times I think, though, that when we think about that verse and we think about that we know that for those who love God that all things are working together for good, a lot of times our minds just think about the good things. That we think about how when God is just placing things in our lives that are all going together, that all those things are working together for good. Um, and we see that, and we're like, thank you, God, for all those things that are happening. But that's not exactly everything that goes with that verse. And when he says that all things that are working together for good, it's the good things that happen in our lives, and it's also the bad things. Um, and so I just wanted to share just a few instances in my life where that's been true. Um, when I was in high school, I grew up here in Dalton, Georgia, and I went to Christian Heritage from kindergarten through uh, 12th grade. And my junior year, uh, I was on the golf team and was getting ready to head to practice. We'd just gotten out of school, and it started to rain. And um, we had practice out in Barnell at Knob North Golf Course, and I was on my way there and was going around this turn, and this turn had gravel on it. And so the turn with the gravel, along with the rain, my car hydroplaned. And I went around this curve, just like skirting all the way across it. And when I came back through, I hit the ditch and my, my Jeep flipped over, um, just right on top of itself. And the entire driver's side uh, of my car, like right where I would have been, was just smashed in. I mean, completely smashed in. Um, but the only thing that I came out of that wreck with was this tiny little scratch on my hand. And it was from where I hit the glass. Uh, and so that was my fault. And so there should have been nothing that had happened to me. But... It was insane. It was one of these moments where like, I just felt like, what in the world just happened? And like, why am I still here? And something else that was crazy about that day is at the same time, during the same day, at near exact, almost to the minute of when I had my wreck, there was a guy that I was going to church with um, that his dad was in a car accident and he passed away. Um, and so it was this weird moment. I was going to church. I was at a Christian school, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus. I didn't know what it meant to love Jesus. I didn't know what it meant that he loved me. And during that time, afterwards, I just didn't really understand what God was doing. I was like, God, why did you save me when I'm not living for you, when I don't have this relationship with you, and you take a man that was living for you, that was a guy that sang in church, that was serving in church, that he, he raised his kids well. Like, why? What's going on here? And that was the first time that I came across Romans 8.28, that we know that for those who love God, that all things are working together for good. And I was not loving God at that time. But that verse, just with the way that God said that all things that he's going to work together for good, it just gave me some peace just to know that even though I don't understand what all's going on in this circumstance, that I can trust him and that he's going to do something in this, even though it was ignorance. Like, I had no idea. And 
And so that was the first time that I came across this verse. So then fast forward into college, um, I still did not have a relationship with the Lord when I went to college and um, just jumped headfirst into everything that the world had to offer for a college guy. And it was crazy. And it was, there was a lot of darkness that I saw. And so during that time, um, I saw everything that the world had to offer and just saw all the, just the darkness and was just not wanting any more of it. And so um, I just got involved with the BCM. Um, but during that time, I got a ticket. Okay. And so um, I got this ticket and ended up having to serve like 50 community service hours in a town in America's Georgia that I knew nobody in except for this new campus minister that had just came to town. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, can I serve uh, these community service hours here? I can set up tables. I can set up chairs. I can take it all down. He had me doing more than that. He had me up on the roof, like doing patchwork with this guy that I just met, had me out there sowing seed, mowing the yard, everything. Um, but in that moment where there was so much going on inside my life, where I was seeing the world and, and I was starting to get back into the, um, involved with this campus ministry, there was a lot that the Lord was doing, and I didn't really know it. And through those community service hours, uh, me and the campus minister, his name's Brian, we ended up getting, uh, he ended up discipling me. And during that discipleship, he, the, we were reading this book called Respectable Sins. It's by Jerry Bridges. If you haven't ever read it, I highly um, recommend it. And the Lord used that book to open up my eyes to a Christian school kid that thought that he could do no wrong and that nobody else saw the wrong that he did to his sin. He opened up my eyes to my sin. He opened up my eyes to, the, to my need for a Savior that I needed Jesus and that he had loved me and that he had died on the cross in my place. And in that moment, that's where I entered into a relationship with Jesus. And then again, was just reading one day and I came across Romans 8, 28 that we know that for those who love God, that he is working all things together for good, and I was able to see it in that moment. And then at that moment, I was loving the Lord. And then fast forward again to once I got out of college, I stayed involved with the campus ministry and um, had been able to teach in small groups and was just loving it and just felt like the Lord was calling me into the ministry. And um, when I got out, um, I wanted to serve. And there was a church that was just 35 minutes outside of town and they needed a youth pastor. And so I was like, let's do this. And so I got there and loved it. Absolutely fell in love with the students, fell in love with the church, just fell in love with just ministry. And we were growing and everything was going so well. I mean, it was awesome. And so in that December of that year, um, a member of our church asked me to um, come and speak at his company's Christmas luncheon and present the gospel. And so he was in this tart business and the guys that he worked with were like, they were intimidating and like just like manly men. And so I walk into this room and there's all these guys that are in there and I'm just like scared to death. But I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to serve and I'm just going to present it. And so I go in there and I present the gospel. And it was just like these men just like softened up and they were like responding to it. And it was just this cool moment where the Lord was just moving. And I remember driving back um, to Americas and I was just like, God, this is so cool. Like, this is awesome. Like, I just love what you're doing in my life right now. Like, how could it get any better than this? And then 20 minutes later, I was involved in a car accident and was being put into an ambulance where I'd broken my femur and had several fractured ribs, having to go um, to the hospital to have surgery and putting a metal rod on it. And then in that moment, then I was brought back here because I had to do physical therapy because when they'd done surgery on my leg, uh, it just like tightened up all the tendons to where I like couldn't move it. And so things that I took for granted, like being able to use the bathroom, being able to go take a shower, being able to get up and go walk and go get something to eat, I was not able to do. I was stuck in a bed for a few months. Um, and luckily I had my mom who took great care of me during that time. But there was just a lot of time to think because 
it took a few months for me to be able to bend my knee again and to be able to actually walk again. And during that time, I was just like, God, why? What, what is going on? Like, why, why did this just happen? Like, I was serving you. Everything was going great. And then all of a sudden, this happens. I'm away from my church. I'm away from the youth group where I felt like I'm supposed to be. And I felt like you were using me. Um, and again, he just brought Romans 8, 28 back to my mind that for those who love God, that we know that all things are working together for good. And he was like, you just got to trust that. You got to trust that. And so for a while, I didn't know what God was wanting to do in my life. Um, and I just continued to pray about if he wanted me to go back or not. Um, and so I ultimately did, went back down to South Georgia and continued to serve at that church for four more years and just fell in love with ministry and just felt the Lord just working in my life continuously. And, and it was all because of that time that he allowed me to go through those moments that allowed me to have ultimate dependence on him um, during the time when I couldn't depend on anything. I couldn't depend on myself, couldn't do anything for myself. Um, and, and the Lord, you worked in so many different ways in those four years. Um, I ended up meeting a little blue-eyed girl that, uh, that let me hang around with her some, and we ultimately ended up getting married, and, and now we've got a, a baby girl together, and we've almost been married for two years. Um, I'm ultimately here because of that accident that I had, because once I came back home and was wondering what in the world God was wanting to do in my life, I had this, this pastor that reached out to me. Uh, his name was Tim Chaney, and I did not know him. The only way I knew him was because he was my sister's youth pastor. And he said, hey, you want to go to lunch and just talk about what's going on in your life? And so we did, and I loved it and was so thankful just to have somebody that was going to hear me out and just give me some good, godly advice. And through that, that was the way that our connection kind of became. And then four years later, that's how I ended up here was because of that. Um, and so, you know, guys, we all go through just dark moments. We all have good moments, but a lot of us go through hard times. We all have dark days. You might be in the middle of it right now. You might have had one this week. Um, you know, you may not know. You may have one this afternoon. And guys, the thing is, is that when we have these dark moments, we have to be able to trust the Lord that He is doing something in the middle of it. We have to be able to trust that God is still in control, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of us not knowing maybe what's going on in our lives at that time and just continue to walk in obedience to Him um, and trusting Him. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up to talk about how we can trust God in the dark days is because of the scene that we're getting ready to look at in Luke 23. Because in Luke 23, we see that Jesus is getting ready to go on trial. It's a lot different of, of a scene than what we're celebrating today. Today is Palm Sunday, where we celebrate Jesus coming in and the people celebrating laying down the palm branches, laying down their coats, declaring his victory, and declaring that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, it's a totally different scene than what we see here in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. But what I want us to see at the end of today is that God is still at work even in the midst of the darkest day in human history. And so that's what I want us to look at. So let's jump into it. So Luke 23, uh, verses 1 through 25. So this is just after Jesus has um, been betrayed by Judas. He has uh, been taken into the Sanhedrin to be put on trial. He has been denied by Peter. Um, and they ultimately end up condemning him for saying that, because he said that he was the Christ, that he was the Son of God, and they condemn him for blasphemy. And so they know that uh, because of that, they want to have Jesus killed. They all ultimately hated Jesus. We see that throughout the Gospels that as Jesus grew in power and as he um, continued to just prove them uh, wrong for who they actually were and the way that they misused Scripture, that they grew to hate him. And so their ultimate goal is for Jesus to be dead. 
Okay, and so what we see here is that now that they have condemned him for blasphemy, they know that they don't have the authority to be able to kill him, and that ultimately resides uh, within the Roman authorities. And so that's where we jump in in verse 1. It says, So then the whole company of them arose and brought before him Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. So they know that they have to go to Pilate, who was the governor of Judea at the time, and they know that he is the one that ultimately has power to be able to put Jesus to death. And so they bring him to um, Pilate, and they begin to bring these accusations against him of misleading our nation, of forbid- forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. In all of these instances, on all the accusations that they bring against Jesus, they're wanting to show that he is a threat to the Roman rule, that he is a threat, that he is an insurrectionist, that he is one that that is threatening Caesar and his power, that he is threatening Pilate and his power in the area that he is over. Because then that would ultimately lead to Pilate wanting to put Jesus to death, because if he is a threat, he wants to get rid of that threat. But here's what we see is that in verse 3, it says, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying that he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. We see that even in the midst of all these false accusations, um, all these false things that they're trying to bring against Jesus, that Pilate doesn't buy any of it. That he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he tells him that you have said so, but that we see that ultimately he says, I find no guilt against this man. Pilate would have seen Jesus. He would have seen him when he came into the city on Palm Sunday. He would have heard of all the other things that he was doing throughout the king or throughout his um, years and the miracles and the way that he was working inside of people's lives. But one of the things that we see that Pilate doesn't see is that Jesus is doing any of the things that they're bringing against him. And so in this moment, he declares that he is innocent. He says that this man, I find no guilt in him. But we see that the Jewish leaders continue to persist, wanting to get the verdict that they want. They say that he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. They say that you've got to understand that this is a problem because his teaching is throughout all of the region, that he is getting people all stirred up and that if we don't deal with this now, that it could be, end up being a problem for you. Well, we see that Pilate then deflects this decision. It says when Pilate heard um, this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. So when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and that ultimately it was not in his jurisdiction at the time, but it was in Herod's, he sends him over to him. And this was a common practice that would happen. But we see that even though he knows that Jesus is an innocent man, instead of just sticking up to the people that he was against the religious leaders, he just deflects and he gives him over to Herod. And so who is Herod? Herod is somebody that we see um, previous in the Gospels. Don't knock that over. Um, and we see that he is, he is guilty for um, having John the Baptist beheaded. Um, we also see that later on in Luke that after John the Baptist has been beheaded, because John the Baptist has spoken out against his illegitimate marriage, um, we see that he, when he hears about Jesus, he's scared because he thinks that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Later on, we see that, that, Pilate, or that Herod had interest in killing Jesus when the Pharisees came to him in chapter 13 and told him that he needed to get out of the area because Herod was wanting to kill him. But we see something a little bit different here. Even though we have this background knowledge of him, we see something different in verse 8. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was actually very glad, for he had long desired to see him 
because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so we see here that Herod wants to see Jesus. He's happy to see Jesus, but is it because he's the, the Savior that he believes in V? No. Is it because he believes all the other things that he has seen? Um, in a way, yes, but it mostly is because he wants to see Jesus do his signs. He wants to be entertained by Jesus. That is the sole reason for being happy to be able to see him. And so he, he spends time questioning him. In verse 9 it says, So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus makes no answer to anything that Herod is asking him. He does not entertain him. He does not do the signs. He does not give him everything that he's wanting, but instead he is silent. And as we see this, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to see Jesus silent in this moment because he is having accusations, false accusations brought against him. He has people that are wanting to kill him um, that, are, that are saying complete false things against him. And in this moment, he's not saying anything. And it's one thing for somebody to say things against you, and it's one thing um, for them to bring these things against you, but it's a whole other thing, too, when you're also being beaten for it, when you're also um, going through persecution because of what people are saying. I would be right there saying, all this is crap, all this, what is this nonsense, all this is false, but what we see here is that Jesus is silent. But why? Why is Jesus silent in this moment? And there's a few things that I want us to see here, is that Jesus knows more than we ever will, the Father's will and the Father's plan. He knew why he was there. Jesus knew that even in the midst of all this injustice, in the midst of a false trial, in the midst of all this false accusations that were being brought against him, Jesus knows why he's there. Jesus knows what's coming at the end of this day with his crucifixion. And he's willing to be obedient and to just trust the Lord in what he's getting ready to face in these persecution and trials. And I think that that's something that we can also see too, is that a lot of times, you know, we don't know exactly what God's doing inside of our lives. We don't exactly know um, some of the things that, that are going on, um, and we will never know the will of the Lord like the Son does. But something that we can see is just Jesus' example, that even though He knows, He knows all the things that He's getting ready to go through. It's one thing for us not to know, but it's another thing to know it. But we see that Jesus is just quiet. He is obedient, and He's not speaking out against it, even though He has every right to do it. But we see that he trusts the Father's will in this moment, knowing that God is getting ready to do something great, even in the midst of all of this darkness. And so I think that that's something that we can all take from this, is that, is that when we are going through things, is that sometimes we do just have to just say, God, I don't know what's going on, but I can trust you, even in the dark moments, even when it feels like we have no idea what's going on. And so that we see um, that Jesus is quiet. So then verse 10, it says, The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. We see that Herod's mood and, and the way that he treats Jesus changes as we see that Jesus isn't giving him everything that he wants. He's not answering. He's not doing anything. He's just this man that has been beaten, that is coming before him with bruises, not saying a word of anything to him. And we see that this causes him to change, that he treats him with contempt, that he continues to beat him, that he ultimately dresses him um, in, in splendid clothing, which would have been the same as a ruler or as a king. But it's not because he respects Jesus, but it's because he ultimately doesn't. He's mocking him in this, and that he just sends him back to Pilate. In all of this, Jesus is being quiet. Isaiah 53, 7 kind of gives us a little bit as to maybe another reason why, too. When, when Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant, it says he was oppressed. 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. In this moment, Jesus knows what he is doing, and he is just trusting the Father in this, and he is led back to Pilate. And then verse 12 is something that's just kind of interesting. It says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Before this, they had had some disagreements about the way that they were to treat the Jews. Pilate was usually really hard in the way that he treated the Jews. And Herod, even though he was still hard, um, oftentimes was trying to play this game of respect with them, even though he didn't. But we see that in this moment, in this trial, with everything that is going on, we just see two people that were previously not together now coming together in one of the worst ways, in their contempt for Jesus and in their contempt with the Jews. And so we just continue to see this picture of just how this day continues to get darker. False accusations um, that are being brought against Jesus. Um, Ultimately, people saying that he is not guilty, but continuing to go down this trialing path, seeing it happen once again. Then we get to verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people um, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. We see, again, nothing is being able to be brought against Jesus. All the false accusations that he is misleading the people, that he is doing all these different things. Neither Pilate nor Herod are able to find these things to be true. And they say that he is completely innocent. And so in this, Jesus should just be released. Jesus should be able to just go without having anything else happen to him. But that's not what we see here. He says in verse 16, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. He says, because I see that you guys do not like this guy, because you do not like Jesus, I can tell that y'all ultimately want to have him killed. How about this? I will just beat him and then I will release him. That y'all will see him all bloodied up, that maybe he'll learn his lesson and that he'll be able to go after that. But we see that that still does not satisfy the crowds. It says, but they cried out all together, the leaders, the religious leaders of this time, the Sanhedrin, but now also the crowd. It says, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. All right, so with this, we need a little bit of context here because we see that Barabbas is just all of a sudden on the scene. But there was a a custom during this day um, that during um, the Passover that Pilate would release one of the prisoners that they asked for as amnesty, basically. And we see that in this moment that Pilate is again trying to fight for Jesus' innocence and trying to just do a comparison game now. They believe that he's guilty. I know that he's not guilty. Herod knows that he's not guilty. We all know that he's not guilty, but they're persisting. And instead of just sticking up to them and saying that he's not guilty and then letting it be that, he continues just to play their game. And we see that ultimately he tries to make this comparison to to say that Barabbas, who was a man that was an insurrectionist, that we see here um, in verse 13, he says, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Um, And so that's who Barabbas is. He is everything that they are saying that Jesus is. When you go back and look at the accusations brought against Jesus, misleading our nation, um, not wanting us to pay tribute to Caesar, um, and claiming to be a king, those are all the same things that Barabbas is doing. We see that he is ultimately going against the Roman government. He was willing to murder in the process of it. And we see that Pilate just wants to make this um, comparison. He wants them to see that y'all should be wanting Jesus instead of Barabbas. This should be an obvious and easy choice. 
But we see that that's not the case in this moment. We see that the people, the Jews, um, all the religious leaders choose this man that was, in a lot of ways, um, kind of like their, their worldly king. He was the one that was going against Rome like they thought that the Messiah would. He was the one that was willing to, to fight for their people. He was the one that was trying to bring their kingdom into that area, their rule back into this area. Someone that could give them the earthly kingdom that they thought that they were deserving of. And then on the other side, we see Jesus. Jesus is the one that is silent. He is the one that is, that is being quiet in this moment, that he is just being obedient to the Father. But instead of giving them the earthly kingdom that they want, Jesus is able to give them the heavenly kingdom that ultimately all of us need through what he's getting ready to do on the cross, ultimately having our sins forgiven through his sacrifice and his atoning work on the cross. But we see that the people continue to be for Barabbas. And so in verse 20, it says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Says the same thing again. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Guys, we just continue to just see this picture continue to get darker and darker. We continue to see the injustice as it continues to mount up. We continue to see the people, the Jewish people, the religious leaders, the ones that had the Bible, the ones that had the word, that should have known who Jesus is, continue to not want his life, but continue to want his death to the point where it crumbles Pilate, the one who has all the power, who has all um, authority in this situation, their voices prevailed against him. He ultimately crumbles in this moment like he had before to the point where Jesus is released to the people, where he is given to the people that are wanting to kill him, given full permission to go ahead and go and kill him. Guys, what in the world is going on in this picture? Guys, what in the world? How is God working in the midst of all of this? How is God working in this injustice and how his son is being treated? If you think about the disciples who would have probably been knowing everything that's going on, they have to be wondering, what in the world is going on with Jesus? Why is this man being punished for all these things that he has not done? How, God, are you working in this moment? And what I want us to look at is I think, God, you can see him working in this moment. Matthew 27 tells this last scene a little bit differently. It says that after Pilate had washed his hands of Jesus' verdict and allowed the people to have their way, they exclaimed, his blood be on us and on our children. Okay? In this moment, we see that Pilate washes his hands, says, I don't want to have anything else to do with what's getting ready to happen to Jesus. My hands are clean of this. And the Jewish people, the ones that should have known who the Messiah is, they take full responsibility for it. They say, his blood be on us and on our children. Okay? But think about what they said. His blood be on us and on our children. It's a weird thing that, they, that, that they're getting what they wanted in this, that they're getting everything that they wanted, even though it's so wrong. But in this statement, you can kind of see a little bit of what God's getting ready to do, even in the midst of all this injustice, in the midst of all this evil that is happening. His blood be on us and on our children. Because think about it, guys, every single one of us needs his blood to cover us. We, every single one of us needs his blood to be on us and on our children. And so what do we see God doing in this moment? 
There's a few points that I see here. And there's one, that through an unjust trial, even with everything that is going on, God demonstrates that Jesus was spotless, that he is completely innocent. And that is very important for the blood that is covering us to be innocent blood, for the, the sacrifice that is getting ready to be made on the cross, for it to be from a man that was completely sinless. And so why do we see all this that's going on? Deuteronomy 19, 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offenses that he has committed. Only the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's why we see Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. That's the reason why, we, why God is allowing these two unjust trials to happen is because there needed to be two people to be able to say that this man is innocent for it to be allowed for it to be considered true. And so in this moment, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of all of it, what is God doing? He is showing that the sacrificial lamb that we ultimately needed once and for all was spotless. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, the the sacrifices that had to be made had to be a lamb that was without blemish. We see that there's a new covenant that Jesus is getting ready to establish in his blood and with his body. And the reason why he was able to do that is because he was spotless. He was sinless. The reason why he was there was because of our sin. The reason why all of this is happening is because of our sin. This Friday, with Good Friday, why did Jesus have to come and die? It was because of our sin. But the reason why we are able to be, the reason why he was able to achieve our salvation in the midst of all of this is because he was spotless. He was sinless. And so even in this moment, God is still in control. Even in the midst of all the chaos and in all the unjust, we see that God is using evil people to bring about his purposes. And then number two is that through an unjust release, God demonstrated that guilty sinners would be released from the payment of sins. Guys, when you look at the trial of Barabbas and Jesus, when we see a man that is completely guilty be released, and we see a man that is completely innocent be guilty and condemned to death, guys, that's us. Every single one of us could be on trial in the same way. Every single one of us are like Barabbas. We have all sinned. We all deserve death. We all deserve to be the ones that face the wrath of God because of our sins. We're all the ones that, can, that deserve condemnation and hell, ultimately. But what we see here in this picture as Barabbas is released and that Jesus is taking his place, we see God foreshadowing what he is getting ready to do with Jesus on the cross and his death and resurrection. We see that ultimately um, with what Jesus does later on this day, that those that are in him can have their sins forgiven because he took all of our sins upon himself on the cross. And that was ultimately everything that we needed. And so, guys, in this moment of complete darkness, we see that God is still working out His will. We see that ultimately that He is working out all things for our good, even in the midst of the, one of the craziest days in human history. And so, as the, as the band comes on up, you know, let's just think about that. Let's just think about the way that we, can, that we can trust God, that we see God moving in this moment, that He is achieving our salvation in the midst of the darkest days in human history. And if y'all will, as I close, I want us to look at Isaiah 53 and read this together because it's one that a lot of times we see in this, but we see all of it starting to come together. And as we read this, think about everything that we just looked at, Jesus being beaten, Jesus being falsely accused, ultimately committed, condemned for all of everything that they said against them to the point where he was dead or where he was put to death. Isaiah 53, it says, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, crowds of them, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The guilty sentence that all of us should have been condemned with. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened up not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Y'all, thanks be to God that he gave us the suffering servant. Thanks be to God that he gave us the spotless lamb that died in our place, that was wrongly condemned, had done nothing wrong but died in our place, that took on all of our sins that we were deserving to pay for, that we were deserving to have condemnation for, and that he took them all upon himself. So let's stand together and worship him.
I'm going to ask you to be seated for a minute. We have some uh, special guests that are here with us this morning that I'm going to ask to join me on stage. And Van, you guys can, can have a seat as well. But Nick and Julia, will you join me up here? This is uh, Nick and Julia Brown, along with crew. The other four are upstairs. Um, but uh, Nick, you guys have met um, Nick before a couple times, and Julia's been with us before as well. Um, the whole family was here in June of last year, and then Nick came back in August of last year to speak at our missions conference. But they are some of our newest missionaries on our team of uh, supported missionaries through our church, and they are now ready to move. And so if you remember when we met them in June and as we've prayed for them, we have prayed for them to continue, excuse me, to continue the fundraising process for the borders to open in the aftermath of COVID and all of those details as they were preparing to go with um, their organization is Biblical Ministries Worldwide. And uh, the, then they're moving on May the 10th to South Asia, and we'll leave it at South Asia because the, the live stream is on, but they are moving soon, and so this is their last opportunity to be with us, our last opportunity to be with them, and uh, as I said, the whole family is here, the other kids are upstairs, but I'm going to close us by inviting the uh, members of the missions committee and our elders to join me on stage and We'll lay hands on Nick and Julia, and we will pray for them as they go. So missions committee elders, go ahead and join me um, on stage. And as I, I do that, I'll remind you, we have these little booklets available that list all of our missionaries along with their families, their ministries, and a few prayer requests for each. And there's some of these in the gymnasium if you want to grab one on your way out. But it, Nick, it, it lists Nick and Julia and their five children all in here, and uh, uh, the cool thing is many of these prayer requests have changed because they've, they've been answered. So these are our prayer requests from last summer that we'll have to, have to update, but um, getting started in a new ministry has uh, all kinds of challenges that they are, are walking into, and lots of culture shock for, uh, for not just Nick and Julia, but for the five young children along the way, and figuring out schooling, language acquisition, and all of the context that they will need to build there. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray um, Nick's dad's outline, basically. Um, this is a resource created by their organization, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, that was um, a prayer guide for missionaries um, that actually David, who's, who's spoken to our church before, David Brown, Nick's father, um, produced this. And so as we pray, we're going to pray for care for the family, for contacts, for courage, for clarity, conversions, Christ-likeness, and co-workers. So if you would, join me as we pray for this family. Father, I thank you for the opportunity um, over the last year to get to know Nick and Julia and the family, to build this relationship between uh, them and this local church for the way Nick has served our church um, through the pulpit a couple of times. Um, and Father, the way you have been faithful to bring them to the point of of full support to bring through the um, logistics to open the doors for them to uh, to move and to relocate and all of the steps that needed to happen before now, God, you've been gracious and, and the doors are officially open and you have made a way for them to get there and, and to minister, be ministers of your gospel. And Father, we pray that you would care for them along the way. 
that you would protect them, protect them from illness, protect them from, um, from the stress of travel, uh, protect them from the stress of the, of the new culture change. Father, that you would um, enable a smooth transition um, to this new assignment for them. We pray for contacts that as they, um, as they move in and as they establish their new home, both among um, their team and their, their ministry team and um, the locals, Father, we pray that you would build relationships um, because that's where you really do the work of the gospel is person to person. You deliver your life-saving message through one person speaking your message to another. So I pray that they would have uh, the relationships and the contacts to do so faithfully. I pray for courage for Nick and for Julia and for each one of the kids, Father. I pray that they would, be, uh, they would see the beauty of what it means to be called by your name to go to the front lines, to go to the nations for the sake of the gospel. And Father, I pray that the kids would, would not focus on what they leave behind, but would courageously embrace their new home and their calling that, they, um, that they've received as a family. I pray for clarity for them as they make decisions each and every day about how to invest their time and, and the difficulty of, of language acquisition and feeling like you're, you're not being a minister of the gospel at first because you're just trying to learn your community and your language. But Father, give them the grace to know how to spend their days and their hours in these months ahead. Ultimately, Father, we pray for conversions. We pray for, for new life with Christ among those that they go to serve. Uh, knowing that this is predominantly a, a Muslim context and that, Father, um, you have many people that you long to draw to yourself. And just as Paul received the vision that there are many people um, that are waiting to be added to your kingdom in an area, Father, we pray that would be true of the area in South Asia where Nick and Julia will go, that, Father, you will have sons and daughters to be added to your kingdom through the ministry they do. We pray, too, for Christ-likeness. We pray that they would be good representatives of who you are and what you have done, and that they would love well and so demonstrate the love you have given on the cross. And we pray for co-workers that, Father, there would be um, good support from those at home with the organization and good support from others on the field, and that, Father, through their faithfulness, they would raise up more and more of a team that they would be able to serve you and serve you together in partnership of the gospel. And Father, we pray for their safety and for, for your blessing over them every step of the way. Thank you for the opportunity to be with them today. And, uh, and Father, now hold them in your arms as you deliver them safely to where you have called them for your name's sake. And we pray this in the name of the risen Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can all now stand and receive the blessing from the Lord. From Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.